When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I guess what we're saying for the introverts, the goal is to build through some going against the grain and some effort, the capacity to on command or at least for stretches of time, go into a mode that is more gregarious, outgoing, etc. What's up, bud? Hello. Back to just you and I. Yes. Do you want to talk about last week's podcast? I, I know you'd written down because we were thinking about a lot of stuff for you and I and Brett Weinstein to talk. First off, we fucked up. We didn't know that you should have been sitting on the same couch. So it was tough for you to yep. speak up. That was why Ben was quieter. It yeah. was a strange circumstance where Brett could see me and hear Ben. And it was, he felt. Well, also, I was incapable of seeing Brett's face, mm-hmm. which meant that I never knew when he was about to talk. Yeah. So, like, it's hard to jump in because you, you see when someone's just sitting there looking at you mm-hmm. versus when they're taking a breath with their hand up. Yeah. And so I never knew exactly when silence was occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also didn't feel like rapport with him because I mm-hmm. couldn't tell if he was like at the end, he said it was one of the best conversations he'd had. And he you had it. no idea. I was, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know if he was smiling or frowning. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, all, almost all of the things that I was thinking were pushbacks. Mm-hmm. And I actually think in hindsight, if you just establish ahead of time, hey, that's how I test ideas, right? Is I just ask critical questions, then you're okay. But I didn't just want to sit quietly off screen. He doesn't mm-hmm. see my face. I don't see his face. And then it's like, hey, just, you know, every time I talk, it's going to be to ask a critical question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's why I was mostly just quiet. And there was another thing that we didn't actually tease out. And it was, it was only after the conversation that I realized that this was an important thing. Um, is that I think an area where we may disagree, or at least in our approach, is he was kind of talking about the vortex of personal responsibility. And my question was, how mm. can I get rid of my own rent-seeking behaviors? And he said it would be more efficacious if we change the structure of the system from a legal top-down level. Um, well, I don't think you know how to do that until you do it in yourself. So this was, this was something that I'd like to speak more about is, yes, one, I think that uh, it's very easy, for instance, for people who have never worked on Wall Street, et cetera, to attribute the ills of the world to, for instance, Wall Street. And once you're in Wall Street, what you see is that there's bad behavior, but it very closely mirrors bad behavior in every other industry of life. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's or, not and I so think, different. I think even beyond that, like, you... People don't understand how complicated it is to run something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? People who have never managed a team will say things to Zuckerberg. Yeah. Like, well, how could you not know that someone on your team, that was-, <laughs> someone on your team was doing this? Yeah, he's yeah. like, I only talked to 1% of my company. Mm-hmm. And I heard someone post something or say something and said, 
if you don't know what everyone in your company is doing, then your company's too big. It's like, okay, well, you can have a company of one person. Yeah. Maybe two. Yeah. I do stuff you don't know about. No. And so what that means is like, let, let's just tease that one out. That statement, which was said by a random internet person, is so insane because the entire point of having a separate person in your company is that you don't know everything that yeah. they're doing. Which is, which is just my way of saying <laughs> that uh, having people make prescriptions for solving problems that they don't understand is very dangerous and, and Brett is not, would agree and with not gonna work. Brett, Brett yeah. often talks about Chesterton's fence and his he, he comes to the conclusion that, look, if you come across a fence in the world and you go, oh, this is in the way, let's take it down, you have to pause because you don't understand the purpose of, mm -hmm. my, of that fence. And I guess what I would suggest to him and like to discuss further is that the rent-seeking uh, concept of these elites that are, are uh, bad doers I actually think is a bit of Chesterton's has some Chesterton's fence going on, yeah, which is we don't totally understand those things, uh, and those people feel so separate from ourselves. And so that's where I come in with the question: Okay, how can I understand rent-seeking behavior in myself? Because then that will help me to understand why the fence is there. Why the fence is there? What's yeah. going on? What? What? At least from a personal, selfish level, is motivating the structure, the creation of such a fence, yeah, yeah. and in in my life and in other people's. No, lives. and I think, and I think the biggest. Thing that I'm realizing and that I would w want, want people to realize is this that th these problems are complicated. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, people look at Amazon in a vacuum and they go, their workers are underpaid or their yeah. workers are overworked. And I go, okay, that is a problem we can absolutely solve. Are you comfortable with Amazon Prime taking four days at the fastest? Mm -hmm. Because if not, we have to replace everyone with robots or well, work them as I hard as you? we're working and, them. And, and so, there's this is the two structures. So, the government could step in and say, you are not allowed to have this much work, you can't do it. Uh, every company must deliver four days at the earliest is mm -hmm. going to be what we're capable of with current technology. And that could happen. But there's also this cultural level of what we demand, which is to say, okay, Stop Amazon, using Amazon Prime <laughs> if you actually care about how they treat their workers. Imagine two versions of Amazon, one which delivers in four days and has the happiest workers on the planet and one which delivers in two days and doesn't. Four-day Amazon goes out of business lickety split, not because Jeff Bezos' doppelganger is evil but because you are, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Like, because you don't care about other people as evidenced by your behavior. Uh, and and it, this is the problem of this globalizing world, which is your your choices impact tons of people. So anyway, mm -hmm. I, I interrupted. No, no, so I'm just saying people, people will say Bezos is bad and greedy because he has these working environments. But meanwhile, he might be sitting in his office being saying, okay, I have people who are willing to do this work and customers demanding for the outcome of this work. Mm -hmm. And so I can as I can purposefully hire more people and just tell all my customers that they're not going to get what they want, but it's not as cut and dry as just him saying, "Oh, I'm I want to make my workers miserable to make myself more money." It's mm -hmm. like he's fulfilling your wishes. Your wishes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is not just the tension that I felt sort of between the call with Brett and I, which we may actually I would love to discuss more with him uh, and hope we get the chance. Yeah, no, I would love to. Uh, but this is this is kind of that top-down approach versus the bottom-up, and I think you need a little bit of both, which is to say, I think that it was good that there were, in the past, laws passed that limited the use of child labor, that mm -hmm. said kids can no longer be chimney sweeps because they fit nicely into your chimney. Uh, even though the market wants it, even though the customer wants it, this h smarter, higher order of government is going to step in and make that illegal for the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And, I'm, and I look back, I go, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that that happened. Uh, but there was a time 
when you needed kid chimney sweeps sure. or kid farmers or kid something. And so the question with all of this is when are we far enough in history, technology, and culture such that that governmental intervention is the right step forward? And when are you, when are you so far from that that the culture needs to evolve more from the bottom up to not demand those sorts of things? Sure. Well, the other thing is there is a solution, which is you replace mm-hmm. all the workers with robots, and then they're, they're fine to work 24-7. Mm-hmm. But people get upset at that as well, because then mm-hmm. they would say Bezos is destroying jobs in the name of profits. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, he can't work his workers. He can't hire robots. And you won't accept Prime going away. Mm-hmm. So one of these has to give, whether it's legally mandated or customer chosen. Like yeah, yeah. We are not at a point where we can have six-hour workdays, one-hour deliveries, and no robotics involved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I watched, I watched the Frontline uh, t- Amazon thing, which is really interesting. We kind of talked about it a bit. But the impression that I got was they were trying to do a fair job, but obviously were critical of Amazon as the biggest company in the world that necessarily at that size is doing things that you're going to look at and go, wow, these workers are overworked and and potentially underpaid and all these kinds of things. Uh, But the overwhelming thing that I took away from that was this sense of like, Jeff is giving the market what it has screamed for. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so that's when I always come back to exactly what you're saying, which is, I got to root out the selfishness, the rent seeking in myself, the desire for two day delivery with all this hefty packaging that is destroying the environment and go, what is it going to take for me singularly to go first and not demand these things of other people? Yeah. It's kind of like if you're a Roman and you're complaining that there's a Colosseum and where they kill gladiators and it's a blood sport. It's like, well, the first thing you got to do is not buy a ticket. (laughs) Stop attending. And then, and plus it gives you this kind of moral authority from which to say, Hey, man, I, I took the difficult step of not polluting as much, not doing the rent seeking, watching a decrease in income. And so I don't feel like I'm totally there yet. So there's a lot of social and political things which I uh, remain away from because I realize I haven't solved the problem on the, on, at my own scale. So I feel, I feel um, like it would be foolish of me to try to solve it at a societal level. Yeah. And the ultimate, I think the ultimate solution, which I'm... Um better than I was before and at the same time very far from actually being there is less consumerism because Mm -hmm. let's say you do say I'm going to try to help those Amazon workers and I'm going to try to decrease packaging right so I'm going to go to a local mom and pops by getting in my car and driving my fossil fuel there (laughs) (laughs) there's no packaging there's just gas in the air now and if you Mm -hmm. believe that that's bad then it's you've just traded off for a lesser evil which maybe that's an improvement but I think the the ultimate thing is to go, I don't need whatever I'm purchasing. Mm-hmm. And now I don't need Amazon two-day delivery, and I don't need to drive to my store, and I can actually just take a walk in my neighborhood yeah. without the need for whatever the last knickknack was that I bought. And there's this same tension of, of top-down versus bottom-up here, and what some people say, well, I want to feel like I don't need it, but everywhere I go on television and on oh, billboards, yes. it's, it's all there. And the question is, well... Are you willing to turn off the television? Yes. You know, are you willing to... No, that's why I think it's... I mean, that's simultaneously what I would advise and the hardest thing for people to do is you're going to have to fight the culture that's being shoved down your throat yeah, by yeah. every Instagram ad and every television ad that you see because mm-hmm. they're all trying to create a need that you don't have so that you fill it by giving them money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I don't... Th- and, and quite frankly, I don't think it can be fought. I think it can only be avoided because... Sure. Well, that would... yeah. Same, uh, we're saying the same thing. If I'm on Instagram or watching TV, it is imp- – and this is the one – I've mentioned it before, but I learned this from the last psychiatrist, which was, in my opinion, one of the 
best blogs on the internet. Um, he, hold on one second. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things he talks about is how you think you're resisting commercialism when you watch an Acura commercial and you go, this uh, pretty woman next to Acura, I'm too smart for this. I'm, I'm not, not going to buy, buy an Acura. And what yeah. you don't realize is you just got sold that that's what pretty is. Yeah. You just got sold perfume from Macy's, lipstick from Macy's. You just got sold that that's the hairstyle yeah, when that the, the woman when, that you marry needs. Yeah, when the like, handsome guy gets into his Audi and you go, I'm not going to buy an Audi, you already noticed his suit and his watch. Yes. And, and maybe you won't buy it, but you've, you've associated that it would make you look handsomer to have a suit and a yeah, watch. Yeah, well, they told you that's what handsome is, yeah. and, and I want to be handsome. So and you've been messaged, stuff yeah. makes you handsome, yes. and handsome is important, Yes, even if you don't buy an Audi. Such that if you're consuming at all, <laughs> yeah. the, the medium is the message is what he says. And if you're watching a medium, television, which is advertiser-funded in most cases... That's the message. Mm -hmm. it's, it's consume, consume, consume. And so we've talked about this. One of the difficulties of this podcast is that no matter what we say with our words, one message will always come through in every podcast. And that's watch more YouTube or listen to more podcasts yeah. because the medium is the message. And we, if we're, to, to the degree to which we're doing our job, you will watch more YouTube and listen to more podcasts. Yeah. You and I have talked about this, though. I actually think that YouTube is an interesting thing because you can spend – a lot of time on YouTube just mm -hmm. wasting time, but you can also spend a lot of time on YouTube watching useful tutorials yeah. and like making yourself better. I don't think it's an awful message. I think there are, yeah, I don't think it's an awful medium, which yeah. is why I, I choose to do it, but it's also why I have remained off of TikTok and yeah, not yeah. on Instagram. Uh, interestingly, our team, I've, well, this is one of the things we're, we're dealing with in the business right now is you guys have, may have noticed on the channel that I'm not on there as much. <laughs> Hold um, on, you want me to get rid of the squeaky? Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Um, what was I saying? Our team. Oh, yeah. TikTok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things with our team that has been happening lately is I've been trying to be less the figurehead on the videos, and you've been doing the videos, and also less the arbiter of good ideas. And so one of the things that the team wants to do that I'm not particularly keen on is more Instagram, more TikTok. Hit these other channels up. Hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because... I think that in, in one analysis, the right thing for me to do is to let go of control a little bit, allow other people to do things that I don't 100% approve of. But on the other hand, <laughs> I go, I kind of have a bad feeling about this. Yeah, yeah. Who is going to lead that project? Uh, well, that's that's what we're trying to figure out. With you know, with don't we, you and I can <laughs> can talk about it. But it's it's a lot of the foreign language channels. I that do are have doing it. I do have a charisma on command related thing. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's listening to this who does like Charisma on Command, please tell me what your most frustrating charisma problems are. Because we have done so many videos. I feel like even if I cover new people, I'm retreading old ground. Yeah. So I would love to know what, are, what problems are people facing today charisma-wise yeah. when it comes to confidence or charisma or making certain relationships work. What videos would you like? And not guaranteeing I would make it, but I would love to come up with some new ideas um, and I'm going to outsource that <laughs> to the people listening. Yeah, I think, I mean, quite frankly, the, the answer for many of them is going to be, oh, we did that. Oh, we did that, you know. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I just want to know what, what are the most frustrating charisma problems or confidence problems people have? Mm -hmm. like, and I, I don't even want to give more guidance there. But I would just love to see this podcast on YouTube, the comment section filled with suggestions. Cool. So one of the other things you and I discussed, this was a long time ago, is um, friend of the channel, Zeno reached out to us mm. 
uh, and he it was it was really interesting. I'll, I'm gonna spoil the punchline here, but I learned a deeper insight into the psychology of scams. So Zeno has done some of our animated videos in the past. I think mm -hmm. he's done a really good job. He's got his own channel, and he hit us up saying, "Hey, these guys reached out." Um, I normally wouldn't entertain this, but they have a really sweetheart deal that they want to mm -hmm. buy my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And they offered me a sum of money that I don't think I can say no to. And I took a look at the emails, and there were obvious red flags, like broken English, uh, you know, the, all this kinds of stuff, which is to say a well-laid scam gets you to overlook obvious red flags. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, a channel, they, they were looking to buy it for six figures and and i asked him what was your revenue and the revenue last year was in the lower five figures and he said that was with a tremendous amount of effort and work and so what i tried to communicate to him and said was like look the way that scams work is they convince you that you're actually scamming them mm. and so it is your own desire to rip someone off that gets you trapped in these scams. That's how all of these, these hey, I'm a multi-millionaire Nigerian prince. I want to give you 10 million, uh, but if you could just send those 10,000 over first, I'll, I'll send you the rest of the 10 million. And it's your own desire to capitalize on someone else's well, bad fortune. Because I need help. Because I'm gonna I need send help. You, I'm going to send you the 10 million and yeah. have you wire 5 million to a different account, but yeah. you can keep five because yes. right now I can't get any because I'm being overthrown. And you go, oh, Mm -hmm. Here's a person that's over a barrel mm -hmm. who I could take advantage of yes. for my own benefit. And, and they might frame it differently, but it's, it's your own desire to get something for nothing mm -hmm. that is going to trap you every time. And or all, for, for more than it's worth. For more than it's worth. And what I, what I tried to communicate to him, I said, look, you would know this was a legitimate company if they gave you a number that was difficult for you to decide because that would be closer to the value of your channel. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is that you're going to sell your channel to these people. They're going to then put up kids' content that is completely unrelated to the stuff that you've put up. <laughs> like, they're going to use the subscribers that have, I guess, they think some interest in kids' content, but certainly less, like it's less valuable to them than it would be to you because they're mm -hmm. your subscribers that want your stuff. Uh, this is almost certainly worth less to them, but they're paying you even more than it's worth to you, mm -hmm. which is a recipe for disaster. And he did, he did sort of see it at that point and went, oh my God, I'm so stupid, but we did this. <laughs> you know, we had so many people reach out to us. This is what MCNs do. They, like, they promise you that it's going to be so good for you and so not good for them. And again, it's always that element of I want something for nothing that has put us into these difficult positions mm -hmm. in the past. So to him, I say, we have all been suckered by these things to varying mm -hmm. degrees. Uh, but just for everyone else to recognize that that is the anatomy of a scam. You think that you are getting the best of the other person, and that is what traps you. That's what lets you yes. get ripped off. Yes. It's your own. I mean, for us, it was people. We, we wanted to shortcut the growth stage of our business. And we're like, people are coming in. We're going to do all your marketing. You're not going to have to worry about it. It's going to be great. And I, was, and I had this vision of like me just chilling and making videos and having everything just snap work while they took only a small portion of the company that's mm -hmm. amazing uh and of course it's not true <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did waste a lot of time though. yeah yeah it's not real um so anyway i just wanted to bring that up because i thought that the anatomy of a scam might be interesting to some people out there that find themselves facing that kind of stuff yeah yeah makes sense i have some other stuff that is completely unrelated brian callen oh yeah okay yeah so you saw this you know this brian callen fighter and the kid yep had me too allegations yep uh unlike other people he immediately came out with a statement that unequivocally 
denied everything. Mm-hmm. Um, said this is this is patently not true. Also said I'm not going to go away, and there will be a live stream this Saturday. So a couple of interesting things that have happened from this. One, I get the his intention. I think was to not shrink away. What ultimately happened is that the live stream did not materialize. Mm-hmm. The Fighter and the Kid podcast now has a new host, mm-hmm. and he has started a new podcast with Brendan Schaub, his old host, that is behind a paywall on Patreon. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what advice lawyers give in these types of situations, and I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but let's presume for a moment that he is earnest in his belief that, that none of this is true, earnest in his desire to not let it affect him, but clearly <laughs> has had to take serious steps away from the public eye. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what to make of it, honestly. I'm not, I'm not really sure what goes on when you're in that kind of a circumstance, but I don't know if you have any thoughts or... No, no, I'm not... Listen, I've never had to go through anything nearly as uh, stressful or difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is the case that the allegations are false, obviously it's been very life-affecting for him. So I'm not saying that he's doing it wrong, but it's not what I expected when he said, I'm not going to shrink. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I expected he'd just be back on his podcast sitting next to his co-host talking, maybe talking mm-hmm. about it, maybe saying, listen, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to live my life because this shouldn't have happened. And uh, that's what I thought he would do. Certainly did not think he would then make a separate thing that's got a much smaller audience and go behind a paywall. Yeah. And it seems that the paywall, I, it seems like that is to dissuade not the LA Times who published the article. No, they'll the pay trolls. $5 a month. It's to pay, it's, it's, to just it's, get rid it's of the, the crowdfunded army or yeah. the crowdsourced army of people who are going to grab clips, smash them together and do that sort of, uh, that sort of work, if you'll call it as much. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I don't totally understand the logic behind it. I don't know what happens. It's such a weird limbo because- I've never really understand. So apparently the legal advice you get is to go away. So like Crystalia got accused of yeah. uh, soliciting underage women, adamantly de- denies that it happened. I have no idea if it happened or not, but he's saying this didn't happen. But but apparently his lawyers say, stop doing your podcast, stay out of the limelight, just let it blow over. Mm-hmm. That seems like not intuitive to me. Well, Crystalia had a very different response than Brian Callen. Crystalia was essentially, this isn't true. I regret some things I've done in my life, <laughs> and so I'm going to be taking time away. Mm. So I don't know to what he was referring, but I do get the sense that he wanted to be less prominent. I don't know that he legally did anything wrong, but he seemed to think that increased exposure might, this is my interpretation of it, might lead to further stories which might be, in I guess his eyes, more true than the first ones that mm. had come out. That was my limited, limited don't know the guy read on it yeah uh yeah the it's it's i mean it's such a strange thing because let's assume a world that is a bit of black and white in brian callen's case either he did what this woman said or intimated which was that she was drugged and raped despite having said no 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 yeah which would be terrible which would be awful or and then there's this other world which is very different which is that brian callen did not drug her had consensual sex, which did not involve the saying of no. And and <laughs> these are two very, very different accounts mm-hmm. of what appears to be a singular encounter. Yep. Now, it's possible that both parties 
totally believe their version of the story, right? That's that's possible. But I think it is less possible that both happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's impossible. So, it's impossible so, that both happened. So someone has done a bad thing, right? Someone yep. has done a seriously bad thing. Either the either in either party, either whether they recognize it or not, has committed rape, or accused someone falsely of committing rape and it seems like unfortunately where you can't get to the bottom what just kind of happens is like a stalemate slink away like both parties just kind of step back which is such a weird justice compromise Mm. and i I don't have a better solution than it because how do you determine uh those sorts of things but it is it is strange to think that, like, look, I don't, I don't know if it was malicious, but or if both of you totally believe what you're saying, then maybe it's not malicious at all. But somebody's done something bad here, mm-hmm. and there is no punishment and there is no adjustment that is occurring that is commensurate with the two seemingly plausible ways that the bad thing got done. Right, because if he did it, then you would think the penalty should be worse than just going getting a paywall. new podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and dr- if he didn't do <laughs> like, it, then you would think there should be some sort of penalty for making up the accusation. Yes. And I think the other thing is this happened <clears throat> 21 years ago. and it's, So there's no way, yeah. Well, it's also just very possible that the truth is somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? This is what I'm, this is, and I, I'm not saying this is the case, but I, but I do think I was kind of framing that as a, if this is the case, but I, there, there's this weird middle potential for 21 years have passed memories of the same event might be different and and i'm going to completely go off the rails and speculate i think brian would probably have remembered roofing someone's drink or that being a thing well, that yeah, but a he compound be, stage of things he could be outright lying yes he could be outright lying but i'm trying like, i'm going to craft a scenario in which both parties are sincere in what they're saying brian does not roofie her she does feel a little bit tipsy uh, and and out of sorts because she had a drink and didn't eat or something. Sure, they or have, they went out for three drinks. They have sex. She feels uncomfortable about it. She expresses her discomfort. He says something like it's okay. Assumes that she, that she then feels okay uh, because she then subsequently says things like yes or or whatever. Uh, and then they part, having initially slightly different takes on what happened. And have and as their lives carry them in twenty one years of different directions, very different senses of mm-hmm. what happened. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I, I'm trying to find a world where people aren't bald-faced lying yeah. <laughs> in, in ways that are convincing. Because quite frankly, when I watch Brian Callen talk, it is convincing. And when you imagine that this woman had to work up the courage to go to the LA Times, sit down and tell this story, it seems ludicrous that it would come from a bald-faced, like, psychopathic lie. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to understand this world where we, we don't have a psychopath in this scenario. We have two people that, that – that, that, how does this happen? Mm-hmm. So I, this is me spitballing, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the case. Then even what is to – how do you sort through these things? Yeah, well, the tricky part is if you, if you could get to that real truth, that if you could just get a video of what actually happened. Well, this is where philosophy starts to then, come. This real truth – go ahead. No, no, uh, I'm just saying – so let's, if you could get a third-party truth, let's say. Someone's not involved. Her friend or his friend? No, a camera. A camera. What angle? That just followed them from, that followed their date the whole How time. How close is it to her mouth when she whispers no? I mean, I'm telling you, there is no third party truth. No, but you could get, you could certainly get more of a consensus. Because right now the world is split into two things. People who think Brian Callen is an innocent man who is wrongly accused. Mm-hmm. And people who think that Brian Callen is a total scumbag. 
And could, 99% of people have never heard this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think you could get closer to a middle ground yeah. with, if the camera had been there. Yes, but I think there's, we've talked about this, uh, the, the, yes, I, I think it would be better if there's a camera there. I'm not going to fight you on that one at yeah, all. Yes. I'm not going to fight you on that. But what I would say is that even a camera doesn't allow for two very different interpretations. For instance, say that she says no at a level that the camera picks up, but he doesn't because he's hard of hearing. I don't, you know, sure. you know like... Uh, and says it in a way like there, there's well, still also, room for very different understandings of the same event, even with the camera present. Yes, certainly. There's also a world where someone goes, we shouldn't do this. I have a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And the guy goes, I know. Mm-hmm. And then they kiss passionately and then their clothes come off and there's and it's not forceful at all. Yeah. But like that has been spoken. Yes. And you go. <clears throat> okay well what is that <laughs> like, yeah. so so we're, we're deep into the land of speculation but i think that the reason that we're speculating is for exactly what i said which is i there's all of these allegations and while it is possible that you have some combination of psychopathic rapists that are that are just totally lying about what they did in the past from an understanding level or psychopathic accusers that are trying to destroy people's lives for personal vendettas mm-hmm. and so, I, by the way some people will fall and, into and both of those and categories yeah, and, and some are some are there's definitely one of each at least yeah. all right for sure <laughs> you can think of some names for sure uh, and then most people are in the middle yeah and and and, and, to, and to be clear it sounds like bill cosby was on the psychopathic rapist side sure. and it sounds like the girl at uva who concocted a story and admitted to it to the, to the Rolling Stone later, was on the side of making crazy stuff up. So we do know that both of these things can occur. Mm-hmm. I wonder what percentage fall in that misunderstanding middle ground. And then within misunderstandings, there's misunderstandings that are more understandable and misunderstandings that are less like, okay, mm-hmm. you're going to say you didn't, you didn't hear or say no? You're going to say like all of that kind of stuff complicates it further. Uh, it is the difficult nature of legislating solving crimes and doling out punishment decades after well, the no, fact to, to, to a thing that only two people were present there's to. also i mean the truth is we we as a society are very confused <laughs> about what is and isn't okay like mm-hmm. i have dated somebody where in the past she's like i want to have sex and i'm like i don't want to have sex tonight mm-hmm. and then she'll grab my genitals <laughs> get me aroused get me hard and then i'll consensually have sex with her yeah, yeah. did she do something wrong we were dating we'd had sex before maybe mm-hmm. she did maybe she didn't i don't know i'm not here to actually say but i'm just saying we're not clear on a society as to what that is. And if, I you, agree. if you polled the U.S., it would not be a 100% survey. It wouldn't say 100% zero or even yeah. 90-10. I remember that's an event that has happened in my life, right? I remember, yeah, I remember talking to you about it the next day. I was like, did you want to have sex with her? You're like, no, I did not. Uh, did you? You're like, yeah, I like her and I care about her, but I didn't want to. And I was like, did you say no? You're like, yeah, I did. I was like, did you stop her? You're like, I physically removed her hand several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, she thought it was cute to continue you know in that way and i've actually and she and by the way and yeah. she thought that i was like pl- being playful or something playful i've been in the same and this is someone yeah. I've, i mean this is someone i was dating we yeah, had yeah. sex there will be no allegation Un- on ben's part <laughs> uncountable yeah, yeah. times yeah, yeah. i didn't feel taken advantage of i'm just saying she she certainly persisted until i was persuaded yeah 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 but then but you but mid-sex listen she's also 110 pounds like yeah, mid-sex yeah. I could have stopped her at any time. Yeah, yeah. So at some point, you have to say that I had consented in the sense mm-hmm. that, like, I, she couldn't physically take advantage of me. And that's, of course, different. And what then she did go, was she put, like, yeah, emotional, uh, I don't want to say, coer- like, what's a gentler word for coercion? Like, she, like, leaned on me emotionally until I gave her what she wanted. Yes. Um, 
And I'm not saying that I was a victim at all. I actually am not saying that. What I'm saying is if you explain that story to people, we're unclear on what that is. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And so when a lot of hooking up falls into that category where it's not the strictest sense of written consent, right? Most hookups don't occur by saying, hey, how's it going? How's your night? It's good. Would you like to have sex tonight? Yeah, I would love to. Awesome. Shake hands and then have sex. So then everything less than that is some shade of gray. Yeah. Well, we can cut this if you want, 100%, because I, if we haven't done a good enough job of anonymizing this person. But one of the interesting things about the story that you told was that that person had previously shared with you an experience in their life of having a boyfriend that... Yeah, can I tell the story since, sure, I, since sure. I don't want to whisper sure. in it? Sure. Um, so, so her story was that she and a boyfriend, when they were both 19... Uh, and I'll get some of these details wrong because I haven't seen this person in, in a while. Um, but the story, as far as I remember it, is they, they both got drunk. Like, no, no one was roofied. No one was forced to drink. They both got themselves drunk and then went into the woods and had sex. And she then got alcohol poisoning because she had drank so much. But this was her boyfriend. They'd had sex a bunch before. Mm -hmm. And also, they were both drunk. She went to the hospital, got her stomach pumped, uh, felt fine about it afterwards it was like i didn't feel like i'd been date raped or taken advantage of and then her her friends were saying how wrong it was that he had had sex with her when she was that drunk mm -hmm. but he was shit-faced too and i mean i don't it know it was college and they just they decided to do yeah this they were 19 and and i don't know to what extent he knew how drunk she was you know what i mean certainly again myself i have walked around parties fine until the moment i threw up mm -hmm. i hold my alcohol very weirdly i black out and carry on conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't drink that much anymore, but in college, you could have talked to me for 20 minutes and I wouldn't even remember seeing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't know how much he thought she had drank or whatever it was, but then her friends basically, uh, she now believes that she was taken advantage of. Yeah. And I asked her, did you think that in the moment? Did you think that afterwards? She said, no, it was upon reflection. And my question to her was, why didn't you take advantage of him? Because mm -hmm. he was also absolutely plastered. Yeah. And she didn't really have a good answer and it got uncomfortable. And because I was close to her and I didn't want to trigger her or make her feel negative feelings, I just went, okay, we just, this is not a mystery. We have to get to the bottom of it. It was, but, it was just interesting that later when that happened and you're like, just so you know, I think you had the conversation. You're like, I said no several times that I didn't want to do this. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Sir, I denied you more than he. Yeah, yeah. Then you denied yeah. him and you feel like a victim. And I don't think that and I'm a victim. she was very not receptive to that feedback uh she didn't fight it she didn't like it but she didn't mm -hmm. say i was wrong okay so and i'm not saying this this is a single individual but the point that you're making is one that i'm just trying to establish with the anecdotal evidence i suppose is that as a culture we have never sat down and really gotten clear as like what is consent consent when does it occur how do both parties know what happens if there is a perception of consent on one side and not on the other side? Like, what? How does this all get handled? Yeah. And also, how does the fact of the very private nature of these encounters that are often with two people with such physical differences between them weigh into this? <laughs> Which is huge, because as you said, you're like, I knew that at any point, if I really didn't want something to happen from a physical standpoint, my safety was not in danger. Oh yeah, that's why I say I really yeah. not a victim here. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Basically, I was like aggressively persuaded is how mm -hmm. I would describe it because mm -hmm. certainly if I wanted to, I could just remove her from being on top of me. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm just saying it's an example of something where we're, we're, we're unclear on what that is. And I, I think that uh, 
unless you're a major celebrity, very few people are using written consent contracts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so everything else is some form of nonverbal communication. You know, mm -hmm. you're kissing someone, your hand goes down towards their <laughs> pants, and then you see what the reaction is. You know what yeah. I mean? And I think that's how 99% of physical interactions occur. Well, I think, I think it's partially an issue with American puritanism about sex. So I traveled in Europe a little bit, <laughs> and the... The culture regarding sexual acceptedness in some countries, or at least in my very limited understanding of this in Europe, was much more direct. Mm. And there's an interesting book called The Culture Code. And what they try to do is they, they break down what different concepts like sex and romance mean in different languages. So for instance, the, the seduction in France this is important to advertising, which is why this, this sort of thing existed, because if you do the same ad in the U.S. as you do in France, you will not sell the product. Mm. So what they found in France is that the culture code for seduction is a game. It's, it's playful. It's cat and mount, but it's, it's a game. The culture code in America for seduction is deception. Mm. It's lying. And if, if you think about it, like seduction seduce is, is not necessarily a positive word in, mm -hmm. in, in many contexts in America, at least. And that's what these advertisers found as they were researching is that the way that we approach our understanding of seduction is that there's trickery. And What's the book called? Culture Code? The Culture Code. And it had a handful of interesting ones. You know, they did, uh, there's, Hummer is, is about dominance. You know, that was mm. one of the obvious ones. So, and then of course that influences the advertising for Hummer, which is, it's just driving over mother nature. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Nothing can stop it. <laughs> nothing can stop. It's just running over deer. Yeah, and, and that appeals to a, that's in America, to a particular culture. Mm. But if you were to do a Hummer in France, the culture code, I forget what it is, but you can imagine that the culture code for Hummer might be like asshole or something yeah, 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 yeah. Like, i don't know or maybe it's like <laughs> the only way you can sell it is to is to show how many kids you can fit in it yes. it's like a family thing you're like listen if you have seven kids you need a hummer yes so uh anyway the point that i'm making is that i do think that there's something american about the fact that we are not direct and many other cultures are like this uh about sex it is taboo it is not discussed you're not supposed to want it it it's it's a thing like you said it's non-verbal and it and it's all this this physical stuff which is it, that varies from culture to culture yeah and it varies person to person so yeah not and every, person to person not every woman is like this sure but like certainly there are women in the u.s where you you could be kissing them they could be turned on they could want things to go further but if you said hey i know this is totally random could i finger you right now <laughs> they would be like you've totally killed the mood here yeah. for me yeah and not all of them someone would be like hey i really appreciate you asking yeah yeah but i don't think it's the majority uh, I don't know. I haven't done a study. I'm not gonna, yeah, sure. Yeah. I won't even speculate. But there, are, that's not, I think, how most interactions go between men and women. So, and all this to say, way, same thing. Yeah. I don't think I don't think a lot of women uh, handle their seduction that way in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And this is this is. Uh, I don't have the solution, man. Now, now there is a solution that is proposed by people like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, etc., which is don't have sex until you're in a committed relationship where it's uh it, it's been explicitly and implicitly encouraged in those relationships but even then i don't think it solves all of the problems like the one that you described which oh, is no, i don't of, want to do it tonight well you know? also um who's that guy from that 70s show he had some Stop. allegations he had some allegations that like some brutal stuff happened while he was in a relationship mm -hmm. like being in a relationship does not absolve uh sexual violence yeah, it does, doesn't solve it, it i guess what it solves are these college drunken what do we do like bacchanalia sure. scenarios um 
but yeah, it, it doesn't get rid of it. So I, what, it, what has to happen? I don't have a solution, unfortunately. Uh, I just know that the problem is poorly framed. And it, is, it has not been, the complexity of it, I don't think it's been dealt with, quite frankly. So that's all. That, that's, that's what I got for Brian Callen. No, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> it's the truth. I have no idea if he's a good guy or a terrible guy. Never met him. I met him once, actually. It was nice to me, but it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's, that's the truth. That story comes out and you just go, okay, well, she says it went one way. He says it went another way. No one has any evidence and we will never actually know. Yeah. So the last thing, do you have anything else in your list? Yeah, I got tons of stuff. All right. Well, you can go. Um, this is a random one. I don't know if we'll have anything to say about it, but I just thought it was really interesting. So I was watching random clips because that's what I do now for my job. Mm -hmm. And I saw Matt Damon on the Graham Norton show, I think it was, talk about his first Oscar. I just thought it was interesting because he's like, you won an Oscar so young and you were trying to make it as an actor and that was your huge break. Like, Mm -hmm. must have been amazing. It was the best night of your life. And I thought for sure, I was like, yeah, he's going to tell a crazy story about him and Ben Affleck, like hanging out with celebrities Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And he says he like went to the parties, then came home with his girlfriend. She was tired and went to bed. He stayed up held the Oscar in his hands and went, thank God I didn't screw anyone over for this because it meant nothing. Yeah. And not that it was meaningless. Like it was like, okay, cool. People liked my movie, but he just went, he just sat, he, he sat there and he said, I had a flash to having worked my whole life and getting this at 75 years old. And it was the one thing I pursued mm-hmm. and realizing that it's a statue. Yeah. And all that people that were clapping are gone and I'm sitting in my house while my girlfriend or wife is asleep. Yeah. And it means nothing. Yeah. And he said it was really powerful because it shaped the rest of his career. And he said, I'm never going to fuck anyone over for anything. I'm never going to do roles that I don't think are good. You know what I mean? And he's just like, I'm just going (laughs) to try to focus on doing things I enjoy with a cast I enjoy Mm -hmm. and getting some money because of how meaningless that Oscar was. And I just thought that was so interesting because it was the exact opposite of what I thought he was going to say. Yeah. I... YouTube found me with some similarly themed videos, which is like why being rich doesn't make you happy. Hmm. And it was Cameron Diaz and the guy from How I Met Your Mother and a bunch of people clipped together, basically saying that in their case, fame made them miserable. Yeah, well, I think wealth and fame are not the same. I think fame is a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But also I, I, would, I would count the Oscar as fame, as recognition, as... Yes, yes, as, uh, I agree. What I'm saying is we have a friend that runs a bone broth company. Mm-hmm. No one knows who he is. yeah. I think that's much better place to be than to be someone who's yes. hounded on the streets by paparazzi. So, so what I'll say is I think wealth has a value and then diminishing, diminishing returns. Diminishing returns, yep. And fame has almost no value and and then negative yes. uh, returns. Yeah, your life is probably only in rare situations going to be worse because you have an extra $2 million in the bank you didn't know about. Mm-hmm. But your life would get meaningfully worse if all of a sudden you became a reality tv sensation it can get worse with money and i think this is why they say that money is a magnifier if you think that that two million dollars is then to go buy stuff that you then have to maintain to that you know that's fair so or it, let's it can, say you can, buy a ton of heroin yeah it can it can multiply your vices yeah, is what it can that's do. fair it's it, it's a it's a multiplier uh and so money can be bad but it doesn't ha- i feel like fame this was I, i've been doing calls with people that are that are course members of em and cu and just, just, just whatever you want to talk about is the call. And so the one guy came on. He's like, hey, I don't have anything specific, but what did you learn that you didn't know when you started this process? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I told him a couple of things. Like the big one, man, I will tell you, is that f- the, the F list level of fame that I have is terrible. I don't recommend <laughs> it to anyone. 
privacy is the new celebrity. Yeah. Relish it, man. Uh, strive to achieve in the sense that you you put something that has your stamp and, and uh, into the world because the act of creation is fun. But if you feel like you need to be the face of it, you're actually just <laughs> you're just hurting yourself. Yeah. Now maybe there's some bargaining or leveraging when you're when you come to sell a business or oh, negotiate. Certainly, like, let's say that you have a charity you care about sure. to the extent that you can get on Ellen DeGeneres. I don't. At I the don't. Snap of a finger right. is useful. It's not an unmitigated evil. Yeah. No, that's not but, what we're saying. But it is so much worse than people think it is. And most of the time when you see someone mm -hmm. saying that this was overrated or destructive or whatever it was, it's not it's rarely the guy that invented the first computer mm -hmm. who has a million bucks because he invented something that's more helpful. than a million. But yeah, well, I actually don't know if the first guy that invented Charles it. Babbage actually, I think, died without any. I think they lost the money. But no, that's, anyway. what yeah. that's what I'm saying. But so, so let's say you invented something, right? You're the first person to come up with something useful to the yeah. world and you got some money from it several million dollars enough to be rich but not a billionaire rarely do i at least see that person being like oh bad mm -hmm. what you often see is like child stars who went getting famous when i was 12 it was the worst was the worst <laughs> thing that ever happened to me. or even celebrities who became celebrities when they're older like jim carrey going yeah i wish everyone could be famous because they could then see how hollow and shitty it is yeah, yeah. you know what i mean so i, I think fame is uh a big no-no but yeah. i think matt's point was even beyond that which is like wealth to some degree is hollow after mm -hmm. after it starts meaningfully or stops meaningfully changing your life mm -hmm. and so i think yeah wealth you want to create value for the world and get wealth that's totally fine by me to the extent that you do it by screwing people over or cutting corners morally i think you get the same reaction that matt did when yeah. you achieve your wealth which is let's say your number is 10 million and you get it by screwing over your friends, ruining your marriage, destroying your relationship with your kids or your parents, mm -hmm. and you get it. And you get the 10 million. You see it go click, 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 click yeah. in your bank account, does it. I think you sit there and you go, holy shit, this was a waste of my life. Did you watch Tom Bilyeu tell the story? No. So Tom Bilyeu, who is, uh, he does Impact Theory, he's very, he's an excellent interviewer. Uh, he tells the story of the day that he made his money from Quest. Mm. And because it was a sale, it all came in one lump yeah. sum. So he said, I was sitting there refreshing, refreshing, watching no money, no money, no money. Oh, my God. And he said it was amazing because the number changed and nothing else changed. Mm. He's like, nothing changed at all. I was stunned by the complete nothing <laughs> that yeah, was yeah, different. Yeah. And he's like, and I did, you know, I went out and bought a mansion. I bought this and I bought this. I was like, holy cow. Like, that doesn't do it. Mm. Now, I, I think that the perhaps obvious rebuttal to that is well then why'd you go buy the mansion you know what i mean yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like if it's not worthwhile and also while, i want to reiterate if you have five grand in your yeah. bank account or negative a thousand dollars because you're in debt and yeah. you come upon 50 grand it's amazing it could meaningfully change your life it could remove stress yes which is very damaging to your health it could mm -hmm. allow you to pursue something that you care about instead of something that's uh, this is drudgery. the idea of diminishing returns which so, is to say there's serious returns yeah on i guess some i'm just amount. trying to define it for yeah. people because we, we said it's diminishing returns as like a throwaway but diminishing, we're, yeah we're, we're not saying that it's useless we're saying that as you accrue a certain amount each additional dollar is valuable mm -hmm. and then at some point each additional dollar becomes less and less valuable and then at some point it's basically the same yeah that's that's what that looks like. Yeah, but it was interesting to hear him talk about that, mention that, and it takes us back to our point about consumerism, which is even I, I was raised without a strong compulsion to money, uh, a slight compulsion to fame, I would say. Mm -hmm. But it's still 
I find difficult to resist sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, such that we talk about business projects, and of course, they need to be run through the lens of, does this earn money? And really, where I would like to go if I fully internalize the conversation that we're having is like, as long as it doesn't really lose me money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, you know what's funny? I that's how I this feel is the about podcast. that's how I feel about your work. So you'll often come to me, you'll say, which of these three projects should I do? And I'll go, I don't know, which one do you yeah. want to do? Yeah. And then it's my turn and I go, what video should I do? And I go, Charlie, what video is going to get the most views <laughs> and the most people in the Charisma University? And you'll go, well, which one do you want to do? I go, who cares? <laughs> who cares about that? It's just my time. Yeah. That's valueless. Yeah, yeah. Your time as a person that's not me gets to have value. And I get to have this philosophically strong stance of as long as you're not destroying yeah. value for the business, you should pursue whatever your heart desires. Mm -hmm. And then I'll sit down and get focused on money. Yeah. And I think that's... Uh, that's a flaw in my thinking, but also I think it's an interesting in, insight into how all of us think, which is you hear this speech and you go, it makes, makes total sense, sense for other people. <laughs> it makes total sense. Don't screw people over for the Oscar. Yeah. You know, try to do something you're passionate about. Uh, try to add value in the world. You go, yeah, I wish the whole world would live that way. And someone comes to you, they're like, I'll give you a 10% raise to do something shittier. Yeah. You're like, yeah, fuck yeah. I 100% feel the same way. And what you're talking about with regards to being the having different standards for yourself and other people, standards for yourself being harsher and less kind, mm -hmm. is I think points to uh, an identification of self-worth with whatever the thing that you're unable to let go of is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very common, you know, for, for people to to feel, which is like, all right, well, of, of course they can do it because, you know, they I like that person. They're cool. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. like me in the <laughs> Like, I need to <laughs> prove uh, so yeah, don't have the solution. I'm doing some more MDMA tomorrow. Maybe I'll have the solution on Monday. Nice. <laughs> uh, all right. Anything else that you had? No, we can kick it to fan questions. Cool. Let's do some questions. I have a bunch of evergreen cool. stuff. I'll say oh, one thing that is just was just uh, is such a side comment. I wish I had something to say, but I started reading Mao's Little Red Book because I think we have strains of fascism and of communism that are on the surge yeah isn't it US. hilarious we're gonna end up as a totalitarian communist Something. country just or fascist like, just like china yeah or fascist we don't know uh or or maybe we'll, we'll we'll thread the needle on this one but it's so fascinating and i think really important to read works that have such different baseline levels of understanding so marxist is in many sectors um, outside of the academic sector and, and some of the very, very left-leaning sectors of America, it's a bad word. If you can convince people that someone is a Marxist, almost without understanding what that even means, there's a negative reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating to, to just have Mao talking about Marxism in the complete opposite way, such that it justifies the decisions and policies that he makes because they are Marxist policies, so it must be a good thing. Oh, interesting. And it's, it's really just useful to, to, because it forces you to go, okay, you know what? Maybe these, these knee-jerk reactions I have to words should be better founded. Oh, dude. Sorry, not to cut you off. Go do, ahead. Do you want to finish your thought? That's it. That, that, that my knee-jerk reaction, even to fascism. Yeah. What is fascism? Is it bad? I don't know. All I know is that it's used in a negative way. Like maybe I should learn something about fascist Spain or fascist yeah, anything. Yeah. Dude, I was reading uh, about um, Taoism because mm -hmm. I, it's, it was great advertising. I watched this video that was about Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. And I, I like, I'm interested in the Eastern philosophies. And it basically said that of the three of them, they share a lot, but Taoism is the optimistic one. You know, yeah. Buddhism is that life is suffering unless you find presentness 
I don't really know. Confucius was it just painted as being more critical, and Taoism was supposed to be the one that was like feel good. But mm-hmm. they all pursue the ultimate thing of being present, going yeah. with the flow. I was like, oh, I'm going to study Taoism. I've literally never read a book on it. One of the very first takeaways I had from reading, it wasn't the first lesson, it was the first one I went, wow, that's going to, that's something I should change. Identifying with anything. Mm -hmm. So saying, so I used to be like, I'm starting to feel more and more Republican or more and more conservative, even though my whole life I identify as a Democrat and I still do. If you ask me what I was, I'd say I'm a Democrat. And the Taoists would be like, throw all that out. That is literally all trash. It's just something that means something to you and your identity and also means something potentially different to who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So if someone says, oh, are you Democrat or Republican? The answer is, what issue are we talking about and what do you think each of those words means? Mm-hmm. Or what issue are we talking about and let's forget the labels and just discuss the issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this idea of like, oh, Maoist, Marxist, fascist, Antifa, mm-hmm. whatever it is. It's like everyone thinks these things are different. Everyone's got good or bad. And the book was saying to the extent that you don't label yourself or others at all is to your own benefit clearer thinking and more happiness and it allows you to be more fluid with your actual thoughts yeah. which is to say if you think that you are a hardcore progressive then it's almost impossible for you to accurately hear proponents of the second amendment not even to change your mind just to hear them that they will speak and you will taint it with your lens of identifying as a leftist mm-hmm. progressive liberal mm-hmm. and said you can have all the same beliefs but if you just don't think of yourself like that then you can just take information for what it's worth, like more cleanly, even though nothing's pure. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. So it kind of ties yeah, to what you're saying of like, yeah, Marxist, uh, independent, moderate, leftist, right? These are actually very, very damaging, all unuseful things to label yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think just to give the devil his due, the value of labels is that they are shortcuts, they're imperfect shortcuts, mm-hmm. such that I can go, okay, round up all the fascists and let's, you know, let's put them some, yeah, get yeah. them out of here. Get all the Nazis, we're <laughs> yeah, going yeah. to Nuremberg. And, and of course, you're, with contained within that shortcut definition is exactly the problem that you're showing. It's like, this is an imperfect shortcut. Mm-hmm. This, like, all Nazis are not the same, <laughs> you know, like some yeah. of them are Nazis because they fell into the party and believe that they want the Germany, which is the country they born into, to do well. And some of them associate Nazism with, with killing all the Jews. Like those are very different things falling some under of the them, same label. Some of them were secretly trying to undermine from the inside yeah, yeah. because they thought it was wrong, but all of their family would get killed if they actually mm-hmm. stu- said anything. And so they're wearing a Nazi uniform, but they would like misattribute where the ammo went Mm -hmm. or uh, something would go be delayed such that a Jew would get killed a day later or Mm -hmm. something. You know what I mean? Like, but that person's still in a uniform. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's not, I think actually for myself, I'm going to try to slow down my thinking instead of having fast conversations where I do use those labels, Mm -hmm. especially for myself, I'm going to be like, no, if you want to know what my politics are, you have to say the issue and we have to talk about it because I'm, I'm going to try very hard to, in my own mind, clean myself mm-hmm. from my identity labels because yeah. I think they're to my detriment. Sure. I mean, we don't need to go deep into this. Obviously, the, the biggest identity that would perhaps cause the most suffering and free you the most is your identity as Ben, right? Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is the continuation of One layer self. at a time. I, no, no, seriously, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that might be... First of all, I'm not done the book. It's a very hard read, okay? It's translated from, from a different language. Um, but I think that that might be where it's going. Yeah, that's but 100% I do, where it's going. But I don't yeah. think, I don't think you start there. Yeah, I think start you start with Democrat, Republican. You start by <laughs> yeah, you start by no longer being tied to your 
political party or your job or, or smart or stupid i think i think that we often uh the adjectives that we use and we we think that it's positive to be confident mm -hmm. right so we're like of course i want to identify and and this is this is part of the phases of life that I talk about. There's a phase where it is absolutely tremendously to your benefit to identify as confident, mm -hmm. to identify as an optimist, to identify as someone who loves people. But then I do think that there comes a time where in every identification that one makes, if I identify as confident, I necessarily am having a more difficult time experiencing the parts of myself that are not confident, mm -hmm. which means that they get repressed, they come out in different ways, I have to battle against them. So I'm not saying, you know, if you're in your young 20s and you're just starting and you're in Charisma University, identify as confident. Mm -hmm. I full, full uh, endorsement of that. Well, but, you could, well, you could even say that in your own mind, at least, none of this is 100% of the time, which is to say before I had moments where I was sometimes confident and sometimes not confident. And now after working on it, I find that I have more moments where I'm confident than when I'm mm -hmm. not confident. You know what I mean? Like you can still progress, I think, with this mm -hmm. mindset. Uh, weirdly enough, what it gives you is permission to not hate yourself when you find yourself in a moment where you lack confidence. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then weirdly enough, you could be in front of a stage, let's say, feeling unconfident. It wouldn't go against your identity and cause you to glitch out and hate yourself, which would allow you to take a deep breath and step into confidence, sure. weirdly enough, because you've given yourself permission to not be confident all the time, which yeah. actually lets you experience your lack of confidence and then move past it sure so i think um you know especially internally just the idea of like yeah i'm not smart all the time and i'm not smart on all topics mm -hmm. did okay on an iq test but certainly there's things we could bring up where i'm yeah. dumb dude drop me off in a mechanic people think that like manual laborers are are quote unquote dumb drop me off in a mechanic's office mm -hmm. tell me to do anything i'm the dumbest person there by a mile mm -hmm. i'm like mentally impaired compared to the mechanics mm -hmm. um so i think yeah just realizing that these labels for yourself like all of them are for certain circumstances and are relative to certain things. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the relativity is where I, is where I come to, which is I think that labels, the, the metaphor that's come to mind is of horse blinders, which is to say, if you want the horse to walk in a straight line across this thing, you can put on the blinders mm -hmm. such that it will do that with less distractions and get there. And that can be across a bridge that is being confident on stage, or it can be walking across a bridge that is feeling shy and reserved and never speaking to anyone. Mm -hmm. So choose those blinders wisely, but also there comes a time where it's like, open up and see the wide variety yeah. of things. There's, there's value to not constantly thinking that there's a goal which your label and identification must drive you towards. Yeah, and ultimately maybe a monk would say relationships aren't important unless it's your relationship with yourself, but for people listening to this who do care about charisma and relationships like I have for a large part of my life, it doesn't even hurt you when someone's like, wow, you're so confident and you just laugh and go some of the time. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to make you look worse to be um, honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So anyway, good Taoist thing that uh, you reminded me of with your Maoist thing. Taoist and Maoist. <laughs> <laughs> That's our podcast, the Taoist and the Maoist. <laughs> All right. What do we have in terms of uh, questions today? First question <laughs> is from Kai Johnson. And he says, hi, Charlie and Ben. As an introvert, I have found some aspects of your Charisma University course extremely useful. Charlie has a great expressive style I have learned much from uh, about how he delivers the course content. Voice expressive, voice expressativity, voice expressativity. <laughs> That's a tough word. <laughs> and gesticulation is on point. Naturally, I am not a loud talker, which isn't through lack of trying, which makes aspects such as these extremely difficult for me. I have certainly found the course as a whole very much focused on high energy charisma. To be charismatic, it is best to be an extrovert. 
This is something that doesn't feel natural to me, and I feel like I am working against the grain a majority of the time whilst practicing some of the action guides. As a quieter person trying to become the high-energy folk has made this journey of self-improvement a little bit mentally draining as, mm. and at points exhausting. Have you got any plans in the works for developing a course that is designed around introversion and low-energy charisma, which still produces the same results as the high-energy style? Or would you say that being high in energy is the only way to be truly charismatic? This is considering that a large portion of people who are looking to improve their social skills probably aren't extroverts. Yeah. Can I hop in with a quick definitional thing and then have you answer sure, the... Sure. Uh, Go, can you be, can you be you charismatic like. without... Uh, can you be charismatic while being low energy and quiet? So I am an extrovert which means I get energy when I go out with people and hang out with them. There are points in my life where I was very quiet because I didn't know what to say and I lacked confidence and this and that. Charlie's an introvert, which is to say that after being the life of the party, he needs to go home and be alone. But you can catch moments where you're the loudest, most laughy, telling stories, center of attention person in the room, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it is to some degree going to drain you if you do it for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a confusion sometimes where people go, oh, I'm an introvert, I speak quietly. Or I'm an extrovert because I'm loud. And I don't think that's the case. So just to, I, I kind of want to interrupt the question and say, you can be an introvert who is high energy and loud for periods of time in conversation. Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, you could enjoy the shit out of them. Like they won't be, they won't be painful for you, even though they might feel that way now because your habits are to be quiet and shy. But you could go out, be the life of the party, make people laugh, be high energy, love it, and then leave to enjoy your time alone. Yeah. So, so that's the first thing I would say is I, I would really kind of try to disentangle the word introvert from the word quiet, shy, doesn't like talking to people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, that's, that's a helpful place to start. When, when I started, I, I, felt similarly like this is going against the grain and it was work for sure to, to get started and it was emotionally challenging uh, to to put myself out there that was yeah. that was the thrill of it. it was like man this is this is like going to the gym this is not easy mm -hmm. for me to do me too as an extrovert yeah and so i think that there's an element of that that i have not found out a way to do it that for everybody is going to be totally in line with the way you're doing things. The, the very act of breaking habits and establishing something new is going to require going against the grain. Mm -hmm. It's going to require mental effort. A complete lack of mental effort is, is exactly the way that we've been doing things, which if you're in the course, is something that you're trying to improve upon or adjust in some way. Mm -hmm. So I can't promise you to take away the going against the grain feeling. <laughs> and uh, one thing I'd say is on the flip side, somebody taking the course is going to realize that they talk too much, mm. that they're not charismatic because they yap the whole time. They cannot listen. They cannot ask questions that the other person finds interesting to answer. And their lesson will be to talk less. And they will find it extremely uncomfortable. And they will be biting their tongue as thoughts race through their head. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's not to say that you're the only person who's going to have to do this discomfort because you're quiet. It's to say, if you're unhappy with the results you're getting, you will likely have to change some of your habits yeah. And that's true, no matter what those habits are, as long as you don't like your results, you're going to have to change some of them. And so then, then I want to ask, so I guess what we're saying for the introverts, the goal is to build through some going against the grain and some effort, the capacity to on command, or at least for stretches of time, go into a mode that is more gregarious, outgoing, etc. And the reason for that is because if you look at quiet 
confidence or quiet charisma, what you will often find is that it is paired with something that draws attention, whether that is beauty or status or something or, or yeah, fame, uh, talent, fame, talent, something else, such that if you think of the icons in that area, the desire for anyone to look at them in the first place to notice their quiet confidence is being generated. Yeah, James Bond can only have quiet confidence because of two things. The camera follows him the whole time, <laughs> so you're forced to look at him, and he is the world's greatest super spy. Mm -hmm. But it, certainly you could have a movie where James Bond was in it and you wouldn't even notice because he would just be a guy in the background who didn't say anything. Yeah, and by definition, any actor that you think embodies this quiet confidence, while there's definitely things to learn, and we've talked about Keanu Reeves and ways in which you could ask probing questions, and all of those things are... Uh, might might you might find versions of it that that suit you a bit better and perhaps we could even make a module that that highlights these uh he is you see him and you like him not because he's the guy in the back of the classroom or quietly hanging out uh, in in the bar yeah. but because he's on television he's john wick <laughs> he's john wick and then he comes and gets interviewed yes. and you have to watch because the camera's pointed at him so the reason that gregariousness, loudness, a willingness to speak first are so such important things is because in a world of six, seven, eight billion people, there needs to be a reason to notice you in particular. And if it's just quiet and you're not beautiful, wealthy, high status, but you're just like got a cool vibe, that is very, very easy to overlook. So it there tends to it tends to be the case that I wanted to, I won't, well, let me start here. I wanted to make a course that didn't require you to be beautiful or high status, you know, or, or anything. Rich, yeah. Or rich. Uh, that, that was the goal, such that the defining feature was your charisma. It was, it was your ability to stand out. And one step of that is going to be to gather attention. Now, I will say, once you have gathered attention and people are interested in learning more about you, you can pull it back more. Mm -hmm. You can uh, become, this is why when we talk about the four emotions that make a good first impression, three of them are really about establishing yourself, right? It's being fun with the other person, having them trust you and then respect something about you. But the fourth one is then turning it back on them. And so if you can find a way or for a short period of time to be more gregarious, outgoing, such that people do want to learn more about you, spend time with you, hang out in your presence, you can shift into a quieter mode mm -hmm. and maintain that sort of charisma. But it, to start with that, I will say I have not seen it done effectively in the absence of fame, wealth, or beauty. Or beauty. Sorry. <laughs> Solid answer. Any, any other? No, no, I think it's good. Cool. Uh, Jay Archer asks, hey guys, I'm curious if charisma is dependent on one's socio-cultural surroundings. For example, I'm half Japanese and I was born and raised in Japan. As Japan is a more collectivistic culture, emphasizing social unity over independent thought more often than in the U.S., I feel like a more charismatic figure among my Japanese friends. In the U.S., there is often people more charismatic than me. Mm. On top of one's charisma being relative to a society, do the charismatic traits you guys teach apply cross socioculturally, or are your charisma traits more applied to a Western audience? So the ones that I make are based on my noticing and experience of Western life, which is to say I lived and I've seen differences in, in various Latin American countries. <laughs> I spent most of my life in America. It's tailored to that. I never knew how much it would pour to other cultures mm -hmm. until people started translating it. And Russia has shocked me. They love it. They find it very useful. 
were in Arabic. It has also done very well. Could, well also, could, no idea. Not to not to pick on people, but there's uh, often there's comments from countries like uh, Norway or Sweden where they they will say something like approach women in a certain way or start conversations with men in a certain way, and they go, "That's not the culture here." Yeah, and I agree. But you visited, and actually doing that is incredibly well received. Yeah. So yes, it's not the culture in the sense that most people don't do that. But the advice, weirdly enough, is like supercharged because no one does that. Yeah. I'd say this is true. I've been to Vancouver, for instance, and nobody, <laughs> men don't really Americans approach. are much more direct, yeah. Yeah, when they're trying to flirt with women, Vancouver guys are much more circumspect. And you might say, oh, well, that's not the culture here. But then when you do actually just walk up and say, hey, how's it going? You're pretty. Mm -hmm. It's very, very well received. And mm -hmm. so sometimes it's not the culture, but it's better for it. Yeah, and that's sometimes not, though I would say that's not a universal thing. That oh, no, of course not. If, course I, not. if I was like, don't bow, that's not what we do, you know, no, no, shake no, no, hands no, no, with no. a strong, firm grip, you might find that that doesn't work in certain uh, Asian cultures. All, all of this said, what you're experiencing, you're like, oh, I'm often the more charismatic person uh, in back home in, in Japan and less often in American cultures. I think that's because built into the idea of charisma is the ability of the individual to stand out. Right? If you think about it, like how could someone be charismatic if you didn't notice them? How mm -hmm. could someone be charismatic if you weren't didn't see them as standing apart in some way from the crowd in a positive way? That's what that's really what charisma is. Mm -hmm. And even though these are collectivist cultures, there are figures in every culture, whether it's the president or whatever, Certain or, or star rock stars or, or movie stars that have that ability to stand out in a positive way. And so what I think you'll probably have to adapt some of the things. For for instance, what cut types of touch are appropriate? In America, the handshake is great. Pre-COVID, the hug used to be great. <laughs> well, Pre-COVID. The question's different, though. They're saying they do very well in Japan. Well, this is exactly Their what I'm saying. The question is, how do I excel in the U.S.? So what I, what I guess to establish, the bar to stand out, it sounds like in Japan, is lower. Mm. The things that you need to do in order to step out of the crowd, be recognized in a way that is positive, are it can be smaller yeah. right but if you and there's times in certain areas of the u.s where i'll go to like somebody else's frat party i'm like i can't stand out here <laughs> there's nothing that i could do to positively call attention to myself that somebody else hasn't already thought of yeah yeah some guy's done. just screaming shirtless on the table and you're like well i can't be louder than that <laughs> i can't be and there's of course there's still ways to be uh more interesting and engaged but uh I notice this in America. There are different environments. For instance, it's easier to stand out uh, on the sidewalk or a bookstore or standing in line at the grocery market when you're making conversation because the bar there is like, well, if you talk to me, that yeah. makes you the most courageous person here. Easier at a bar than at a nightclub. at a bar that is one level and a nightclub with a Vici is a complete different level. Mm -hmm. So... What I would say is that I don't know exactly what you're going to have to do, but as a, the, that shape in America has taught me the street in America, it's enough to be the conversation starter, the person that is cracking jokes first, the person who goes first in terms of speaking, joking, revealing something funny and vulnerable about themselves, that's enough. Uh, as you go up the ladder into a party or a bar scene, which maybe it isn't happening right now but might in the future, now you've got to add into that size. You've got to be louder, more expansive. The laughing needs to be bigger. When you clap someone's shoulder uh, and give them a hug, what's up? Like that, there's a size and an enormity to it that needs to be seen. Yeah, yeah. You, talk, you gesture with your hands out a lot more. You take up more space when yeah. you talk. And then if you go to like the, the level in America, which was for me, you needed to stand out the most, which was 
uh, say like a nightclub, which is loud, there's music, it's dark, you can't even be seen as well when you're doing that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. is I guess what is added to that is you got to stay loud, but there's also a sense of uh, like conviction, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know what the what the additional ingredient that I would say that makes people like you, but it's it's like you have to let them know like I'm talking to you, like I like look them in the eye in a way that at a bar it could be a bit more lackadaisical. You've got more space. If you're speaking to someone in a nightclub, you have to let them know with your eyes that like I am speaking to you because yeah, yeah. because if I look away, for, you know, the flashing, just, the flashing lights, lights are going to capture your your attention and direct elsewhere. So all that to bring it back is to say that what you need to add in America is likely a willingness to go first or and or size, which can be measured in terms of volume, the, your, volume voice, your voice, the size, size of your, your gestures. gestures. Yeah. yeah. Anything to add? No, no. Cool. Next one's from Eli, and they say, Hey, Ben and Charlie, love what you guys do. I have a question revolving around psychedelics, mostly involving around changing someone's perspective about them. I have talked to my dad a couple times on the impact they've had on my life and how they made my mind more open, also having a fundamental shift around love in regards to my family and the people around me and just being more grateful in everyday life. Every time I bring up the topic to him, he dismisses them as just drugs and that I'm using them as a blanket to cope with my life problems and for him, that's not a good way to find solutions for them. How would you go about opening up someone's mind to the idea that there are really effective ways to figure out problems in your life no matter how big or small it be whether it be love, compassion, or empathy. Do you want to go? Um, I will if you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents were not very judgmental of psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, generally, uh, pace and lead is the big thing. So I, I, the degree to which you understand where he's coming from is going to make you much more effective at speaking to him. And I can understand where he's coming from because I shared his beliefs for approximately 30 years. Uh, and so what I would say is I totally get it, Dad. I think that most drugs, and I would include caffeine, Adderall, you know, like yeah, the yeah. ones that we use habitually in society are to close off our perception, narrow our focus, and help us cope with, with the difficulties of our lives. The and pain that is existing. Yeah. Uh, I, can't, I can't focus. I need to, you know, take, take this thing. Or I can't, I can't unwind. I need to drink. Uh, I get it. I've done it. And you're dead right. That that was my experience of alcohol. This, unfortunately, so that's your pacing part. You go. Unfortunately, I think that there's things that have been categorized as drugs that really should form a separate category. And broadly, those are psychedelics. Now, again, you'll have to pace again. Now, if you do a psychedelic at a rave, or you do it, you know, at at in an environment where your only goal is to disconnect, you could probably achieve that very easily. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things about these, again, we're back to leading, is that with the right intention and the right setting, it actually does the opposite of helping you cope. It forces you to look deeply at the thing that you have been avoiding with alcohol, address it so that you don't crave the alcohol or the escape as much anymore. So anyway, the, the short answer is pace and lead, which is to acknowledge his reality and what is right and true about it and the ways in which you agree. And then from there goes, but there's this angle that you may not yet have seen. And I think that is likely to be more persuasive. Yeah. Q. Next is from Oliver and they say, what, to, what do I do against feelings of not being enough? Not being good enough for a certain position or enough to deserve a loving relationship or just simply enough in my own head to achieve self-love. I'm in my early 20s and I grew up around a lot of negative influences from my mother. She's the kind of person who criticizes everything without thinking through her remarks. 
She sees the negative in everything and she's hot-tempered. When I do something wrong at home, she lashes out to me saying, how could I be so stupid or clumsy? This makes me actually believe her remarks that I'm not good enough. Mm. She also didn't really let me or my brother do anything at home without her permission, and I developed a need to ask for confirmation and permission for certain things in other areas too. For example, in my work environment, I constantly ask whether I'm doing things okay or not. Yeah. Of course, I don't want to blame solely my mother for my feelings of inadequacy, but she surely influenced me. When I confront her about these issues, she tells me that I'm being too emotional. Maybe I am, but that doesn't really help solve anything. Is there anything I can do on my own to get rid of these feelings of inadequacy? What's the book on cognitive behavior therapy? Feeling good. Feeling good. I would recommend checking out the book Feeling Good. Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot of, I think a lot of books like Radical Acceptance, they have good messages, but Feeling Good has very actionable exercises, Mm -hmm. which I think would be helpful. Yeah. You said, I think you said he was 22. I'm 32. I feel like I, one, the fact that you can start to trace some of these back is a great sign that early. It means you'll have a shorter path <laughs> to, uh, to a level where you feel more comfortable with the stuff. This is where the two-phase approach really becomes important because I think you're so young that the first approach is going to be the outer world. It's going to be proving to yourself that you are not the things that your mom says you are in a very physical, tangible way. So setting goals, identifying as uh, not being lazy, identifying as as being a hard worker who is capable of things and then and proving that through your actions and behaviors. And this is a lot of the stuff that you and I were focused on. So what did we do? We, we had these boards that we had where it was like every day we have to do something for exercise. We have to eat right. Oh, yeah. We had all these very... I had a, white, I had a whiteboard. Yeah. And then we would like check our boxes like, did we eat right? Were we social? Yeah. Did we do all of these things? And No, I could feel good enough if I checked enough boxes. I yes. think I had to go five for seven or something. Yes. And so I think at this phase of your life, it really is about what are the concrete behaviors? Ben mentioned one of them. Did I do my cognitive behavioral exercises? And like really having a checklist and doing it. Now, I will tell you, the checklist is going to be amazing until it's not. Like yeah. it's going to be, it's going to be a huge leap forward for you, and then it'll fall flat. And then the second phase, well, not fall flat. You'll just stop feeling a sense of accomplishment. Sen- from yes, it. it'll just become, it'll become the new normal. You'll need that to you do work more. Out, you work out five times enough. a week. Yeah. you eat well every day. You do your CBT exercises. You go out socializing at least three times a week, and checking the boxes no longer fills you with a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. But it will for a period of time. Yeah make you feel amazing and like you are good enough because you are growing. And it's going to give you some of the foundational, uh, you could call them more masculine, external world life skills, which I think are just generally great to have. Then, and you can, if you want, you can try these simultaneously, but what I tend to see, the, the road that most people take, is once they go, oh, wow, this stuff isn't working, external world isn't working, then you come back to the inside and you mm-hmm. realize and through stuff if you want take the course emotional mastery i've got a resources page which if you want to read some of the books that have influenced it you can check those out uh then you go towards the root which i think you are right in many ways is your mother and this conditioning which runs very deep in you pre-verbal because your mother was the same person even before you could speak and walk that just that has ingrained this sense of you are not enough and that will not go away simply by focusing on the external. And so with that, what you're looking at is therapy, breath work, psychedelics. You don't have to do psychedelics. You can do the other exercises in emotional mastery. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is intended to not power through the feeling like your mom is encouraging you to do and like I'm encouraging you to do in phase one. Phase one is like breakthrough. And then phase two is like 
soften up, feel it, be upset, be the emotional person that your mom has told you that you can't be and learn to accept that in yourself even if your mom didn't. Uh, so this is, I just described several years probably <laughs> to you. So just in the short term, I think uh, start with the basics of goal setting, things that are going to, if you go, you know what, if I did that, I would be a bit more proud of myself. And you know what, if I stopped asking for permission, I would be a bit more proud of myself. One of the great first books which you can start with is uh, Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. And I think that can give you some good, some good guidance. Plus Charisma University is, is kind of that first phase if that's of interest to you. Yeah. I think the first part of Six Pillars of Self-Esteem is rough to get through, right? So if you find yourself mm-hmm. reading it and you're like, this is a slog, just skip ahead a chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets good. Mm-hmm. But I know we've recommended that book a lot. And personally, in my experience, like, fuck, <laughs> it's heavy. It's heavy in the beginning, a little tough to get through. And yeah. then you get to the pillars and the exercises. And that's the gold, in that, my opinion. That was a great question for a 22-year-old. I'm shocked. Um, so the next one. <laughs> the next guy's 45 and he wants to know, how do I get money and women to have sex with me? <laughs> I recently broke up with my long-term girlfriend, and while I'm still feeling a little bit raw about that, my question has to do with learning how to feel comfortable being alone. I've only been single for a handful of weeks in the last five years, I'm 25, and I think it has to do with the realization that I came to through counseling that I'm a person that tends to derive my self-worth from what others think of me. Because of this, I'm a people pleaser, often finding myself the mediator amongst friend groups, and if someone is upset with me, I obsess about it and work extremely hard to get them to forgive me. My main question is, how do I learn to care less about what others think of me and learn to stop deriving my self-worth from a significant other, friends, or family? P.S. Do you have any advice on how to keep dating casual? I want to remain single for a while, but whenever I go on dates, I guess I give women boyfriend vibes (laughs) as they usually want to progress our casual dating into a serious long-term relationship, and I have a tough time letting them down. I'm not surprised with the people-pleasing that those two go hand in hand. I will answer that last question. So... Do you want to do you want to start from the back? No, no, you can start from the front. So these are, you know, what's funny? If you'd asked me these questions three years ago, I would have more tactical, faster answers, which were less long-lasting. And I feel like I want to give you both. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, what I suspect is the longer-lasting answer is the same thing that I'm saying, which is this introspective work. That's why I made emotional mastery. <laughs> I think that it's that it addresses, if not solves, a lot of these issues. But yeah. But what's the shortcut? The, okay. The first things, people pleasing. This is very similar to what I answered for the last question. Phase one is behavioral, external, changing. Six pillars of self-esteem can be really good for that because what you'll find is that there's exercises, sentence completions in there that encourage you to reflect on your day and ask, if I had 5% more integrity, what would I have done? And you'll be like, if I had 5% more integrity, I would have said no when that person asked me to do this because I didn't want to. And in doing those exercises and every day writing down and having something stare back at you that will encourage you to subtly shift your behaviors in a way that boosts that self-esteem and creates a positive feedback loop. And it's true, it's very powerful. I, I know it's just sounds like it's just a book. It's why we quit our jobs. Mm-hmm. It's why we moved to Brazil. It's oh yeah, yeah. Every Those single completions. <laughs> every single day was if I had five percent more integrity, what would I have done? I wouldn't have gone to a job that I hated. <laughs> yeah. I would have done something I cared about. And you write it down for two weeks straight. You're like, I got, I got to change something because yeah. you, because you get a recurring answer to all these different exercises mm-hmm. that are in the book. So. Yeah. Uh, I know it sounds like, oh, what can a book do for me? But it, it, it will have a powerful impact on your life. Yes. So that's the first one. Again, there's a phase one, phase two sort of thing to this that's, that's at work. And I think that will help a lot with people pleasing is to focus on behaviors. But of course, the behavior is merely the symptom of something that is growing out of a root. And at the risk of beating a dead horse, I think the counseling that you're doing is a great idea. 
uh, one of the things that I've recently done, and I'm always loath to share things that are recent because I don't know how long lasting or if they work, but mm. it, it, is, it seems promising is, um, gosh, I'm going to screw the name up. The type of parts integration slash family behavioral therapy, I forget what it's called, family behavioral parts therapy. I'll, I'll try to get the correct name. But it's, it's generally the idea that we internalize our families such that we have an internal mother and an internal father. And uh, that it's really not your mom yelling at you or your dad yelling at you that you need to fit into the family and be pleasing that is guiding you. It's your sense of that person that is now part of you. That's that inner voice which you think is yours that is steering the, the ship in many cases. So that, that can be useful for unpacking some of that kind of stuff. And again, I hate to beat a dead horse. Psychedelics are, are powerful when you come in with these kinds of intentions. Uh, so step one. Behavior, six pillars of self-esteem, start making subtle changes. Long-term, keep up with the therapy, maybe check out our emotional mastery course. Uh, it's not a substitute for therapy. I do think that there's something really valuable about the customized interaction, but what I've tried to do is scale the last several years of the best exercises, advice, things that have stuck with me and put it into a format that in 24 days you can see growth in these types of areas. Mm -hmm. Can you repeat the question one more time? I want to make sure we don't miss anything. Well, there was the, yeah, the last Yeah, no, part. I'm going to hop. I'm gonna, I'll handle that. But I'm just curious because I know it was a long question. Um, he says he's feeling lonely. He's fe well, what I was focusing on, I guess, was the people pleasing. So I might. Yes, that's I what I'm saying. So yeah. can, you, can we run through the question again? Yeah. So recently broke up with my long-term girlfriend. Uh, still feeling a little bit raw about that. I want to know how to feel comfortable being alone. I've only been single for a handful of weeks in mm -hmm. the last five years. I'm 25. Mm-hmm. Um, and through counseling, I realize I'm a person that tends to derive my self-worth from what others think of me. Uh, because of that, I'm a people pleaser. And if someone's upset, I obsess about it and work extremely hard to get them to forgive me. Yeah, I, I, I know the piece I missed, the lonely piece. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll say one thing to, to this. For the loneliness, I find what would be really, what can be useful, if you do emotional mastery, I think it's day three, the inner child stuff, very, very useful. But essentially, if you're going to skip that and, and just watch this, what I would say is to sit down quietly, take several deep breaths, calm yourself down and say, what kind of special attention that I'm seeking can I give myself? And what you will find oftentimes is that these childish things come up like I want a bath <laughs> or like I want to watch a fun movie or I like, want to play video games or I want to I want to eat junk food tonight and not do anything and that companionship with yourself the willingness to like slow down and be like okay if i love myself what kind of nice thing could i do mm -hmm. alone with myself uh the then seeing what comes back and finding an answer that you are capable of whether it's the junk food or the video game or the bath or uh, setting up a, a nice massage for yourself that will often help a lot with the loneliness what my i found in my loneliness one of the big things was that it was only with women in particular that I allowed myself the luxury of not working and of mm -hmm. stopping to think about work. So that was what came up for me is like, I just want you to stop beating me up. <laughs> like, I want to be off the clock. I want to, yeah, yeah. you know, play video games and, and goof around. So I, I want to hop in and nuance that a little bit. So I think I'm going to simplify the world, even though it's not true. There's basically like two types of people, right? There's these type A overachiever. I calendarize my workouts. I have meal plans that are, it's like broccoli and chicken every day. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, to Charlie's point, what you like about the relationship is it lets you have ice cream in bed, play a video game, watch a movie. So you can, you can satiate part of what you liked about that companionship was just cutting yourself some slack. There is another person who eats ice cream all the time, plays video games all the time, and maybe even with your girlfriend, 
you still ate ice cream all the time and played video games all the time, but that's that's not going to be your route out. Mm-hmm. For that person, what you might need is more self-worth, which ultimately will not come from the external world. It will come internally, but a very quick way to at least get out of that loneliness and have some more respect for yourself is to go the other way, is to get to the gym, start a side hustle, yeah. do something that makes you proud of who you are as a man. And so I think it really depends where you're at. And so if you are someone who's working out, eating clean and beating yourself up every time you make a mistake, then be gentle on yourself. If you're someone who doesn't hold yourself to a very high standard, weirdly enough, pushing yourself to do things that are hard, that you're proud of yourself for afterwards will make you like yourself more, hold yourself in higher esteem. And that will make you feel less lonely because you will like who you are. Does that make yeah. sense? And I think, and I think, get quiet. Don't go with your thing. Like, get quiet. Take those deep breaths and be like, which of these directions is the one that is the one that I need right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and and see what comes back. And yeah, Ben's, to Ben's point, depending on where you're starting, the answer might be complete opposites. Totally different than what I did. Second thing, this is again like ultimately deeper answers. But for your loneliness, for myself, I went through a breakup once where I knew that I wanted to break up with the woman, but I missed her tremendously afterwards. And the reason was I had texted her every day for four years while we were dating. And so anything would happen. I'd get, I'd have something funny to share. I'd get in like a little tiff with my boss and I wanted to vent. My instinct was to reach for my phone and text her. And then what I'd end up doing is looking at my phone, missing her. And what I found is that I could diversify those messages, which is to say no one wanted to get 12 texts from me in a day, but I could send one to my sister, one to my dad, one to Charlie, maybe three to Charlie, let's say. And I know that that sounds like a very superficial quick fix, but in the moments immediately after a breakup, it's incredibly helpful because you don't feel that hole in your life so much because there's not this absence of communication relating that you used to have. You know what I mean? You used to feel so deeply connected to someone like you could share all these things. And now you feel like I'm missing that. And instead you can feel like I actually have 12 relationships and no one is going to replace my significant other but I still feel connected as a human to other people. And like I have relationships that make me feel loved, even if it's 10% is loved by 10 people. Yeah. So I think that that personally was something that was very, very helpful as I was recovering from a breakup. Now for the fun part. Yeah. So How now, do I stop giving up boyfriend vibes yeah. on my dates? So it's so funny. I just talked to this, to my friend about this because he just got out of a serious relationship and has the exact same question, which is, well, actually this is a little different, but... Uh, his question was, I want to go out with these women, but I, I'm not about casual sex, but I want them to come back with me. But then I feel like I have to sleep with them to make them happy. And your question is, well, I have these women and I want to have sexual relations with them, but I don't want to make them think I'm a boyfriend. And how do I? And with all of these, it's before anything happens that leads them down the path of thinking something about you, like you're going to sleep with them or you're going to be their boyfriend. You just tell them what is actually occurring in your mind. So, you know, for a long time I did open relationships and it meant before I had ever even kissed someone, normally within the first 20 minutes, I'd be like, what are you looking for in a relationship? And they would share whatever it was and then they'd say, what are you looking for? I'd go, well, here's a fun fact about me. I don't date exclusively and I haven't in nine years. And they would go, what? And then we have a long conversation, or not long, but like we'd have a conversation about why that is and what that is. And I would immediately not be bucketed as the exclusive boyfriend guy. And then they could choose whether or not they wanted to 
kiss me, have sex with me, whatever it was, but there would be no confusion on that day <laughs> about where the relationship was heading. And then depending on how you act, if you act like a very doting boyfriend, even after having said that, ultimately your actions speak louder than your words. And so they'll be convinced that you're going to change your mind. But at least to start, the easiest thing to do is just say, hey, like, let's say you're on a, you're going on a Tinder date, right? And you go on a FaceTime and the girl's like, hey, what's going on? You're like, oh, hey, let's blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, so after getting some pleasantries out, you go, what are you looking for? And then she says, what are you looking for? And you go, I just got out of a serious relationship. Ultimately, maybe that's what I have in mind, but I don't imagine I'll have a girlfriend again for years. But I to date, I, you know, but I don't want whatever the to truth is, a, having a girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. yeah, whatever it is. And funny enough, people always look at me like I'm insane when I say that I tell people before I even kiss them that I won't date them exclusively because they think I'm shooting myself in the foot. Some people walk away, but some people actually just appreciate the honesty. And then in their head, they go, is this something that I've never considered, but that could make me happy? I don't know. I'll try it, whatever it might be, right? Mm -hmm what makes people the most upset is if you don't tell them until after something physical has happened because mm -hmm. then they feel tricked and so to your to the extent that you don't want a serious relationship just tell them and tell them exactly why and i i have often found that what words you say matter so much less than how you say them so if mm -hmm. you just come in comfortable with who you are comfortable with what you want and you share that some people will opt out and some people will opt in mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's good at the beginning. One thing that I'll say, and I don't know that you've gotten to the bottom of this riddle, but you you put out boyfriend actions. So you'll yeah, say yeah. early that you don't want it. And I think that is, you know, night one on a date with Charlie, night one on a date with Ben, they'll have the same impression of where it's heading. Mm -hmm. Month, I don't know, two, three, whatever, of dating Charlie and Ben, there will be still very different impressions. And, yeah, I think, yeah. and we've often talked about how uh, when someone breaks up with me, we tend to remain in contact or at least friendly. And when someone breaks up with you, it's like scorched earth, been ruined, like, because... Not for the last six years. Sure, but... Uh, Emily? Yeah. Still would contact me. Still would talk sure, to me. Sure, sure. I, I, I cut that off because I thought the relationship was that, okay, codependent. So the, yes. She expected to marry you. Everyone expects... Yeah, so did Jess. Uh, that was the one. I would say that all of my other... Jess was the anomaly for yeah. me. I mean, if you disagree, let me know. But I would say that you put out boyfriend vibes in a way that I tend not to. Yeah, yeah. And I don't... What are the actions that... Are? I make myself seem like I would be a good boyfriend if you could get me. Uh-huh. I think that's that's potentially a difference. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll go out on dates or buy presents or whatever it is mm -hmm. such that someone goes, if I could convince this person to be my boyfriend, that would be a good thing for me. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing you do remarkably <laughs> is make people interested in you, but also make it very clear like... That's not going to work out well. You wouldn't even want this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Like this isn't even, to take this in a different direction would actually just be bad. Got it. That's, Got what, it. that's what I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, the, the specific behaviors are I don't go on dates or do fun, cute things. I am stubborn in like uh, not thoughtful <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but all of this to say like i'm saying all these negative things obviously people continue to choose to see me because i am uh, i suppose fun to hang out with spend time like like the, the casual parts are fun but when you imagine a longer term commitment i think it it's like no that's that's not what i want forever yeah uh and so yeah waiting for you though your last two relationships they both wanted to be with you long term yeah i think that's just low standards i don't know <laughs> 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 All right, so what else do we have? Uh, yeah, that was the last short, for our normal questions. Yeah, cool. in, so now we have 
Patrons? Yeah. Cool. No, I was just going to say, in short, just communicate up front what you're looking for. Yeah. All right, so we're hopping to patron questions. Thank you guys for yeah. listening. That's the end of the podcast. If you want to check these questions out and support the cast, please donate to our Patreon. We are, I think, right now 150 away from one podcast a week. Wow. Cool. But also, we have some big donors that might pull out, so we're also close, on the other hand, to two Only podcasts two a month. <laughs> so it could go either way. If you guys want to make sure that we're doing these more frequently, please consider donating to Patreon. It all goes to Justin, and uh, it helps us make these. So let's do it. Patron questions. Peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.